Welcome to Trinity on Tap, The New Testament, a podcast series brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, presented by Dr. John Frederick. Welcome back. We are at 1.2. What is in the New Testament? If you are asking questions about the New Testament and the Bible and all that, you'll no doubt be familiar with a weird experience that most of us have, which is just to open the Bible and read. I think most people, right, you know, they'll start with Genesis because it's the first book and they'll just say, I'm going to just keep going. And this usually works fine until you get to the book of Leviticus with God ordering all sorts of weird animal sacrifices like a big cosmic freak who generally greatly dislikes turtle doves. The Lord is like, cut off this particular bird's head for I am the Lord and I like headless poultry. Okay, that's not really in the scriptures, but that sort of thing is what you find in Leviticus. And then the Lord saith, hey, worshiper, you might have wanted to eat that grain for breakfast, a nice hearty, nutritious beginning to your day. Wrong. Light that Uncle Toby's on fire because I am the Lord and my cosmic nostrils dig the holy stench. Just eat some yogurt for brekkie. You'll be fine. You'll be fine. You know, it's at that point that most of us give the good book a break, perhaps even to eat breakfast, feeling guilty all the while because we elected to eat our cereal rather than to set it aflame for the Lord. And it's the same thing with the New Testament. We are free to open the pages of Scripture and read, but oftentimes it feels like flying into a foreign country, into an unfamiliar culture, a totally different world. It's kind of what an American feels like when they move to Australia and they see people playing cricket. At first, you just sort of feel really bad for them. My goodness, look at all those people wrongly playing baseball. To an American, a sport in which a single event can last over six hours or even several days is a strange kind of punishment to call a pastime. I believe the Roman Catholics refer to this sort of thing as purgatory. Okay, okay, settle down, I'm only joking. I can sense some blood boiling. What can I say to an American, to us, Cricket just looks like a confusing, demented form of purgatorial baseball. But that's the point. It's about stepping into a totally unique cultural situation. It can be confronting, confusing, annoying, and all the rest of it. We need to do some cultural homework. Some cricket homework for me, I guess. Before we can fully appreciate and understand anything like a different culture. Or in our case, a different world. The world of the New Testament. We need to know what we're reading in order to know how to read it. Last episode, we asked, what is the New Testament? And we came to see that the New Testament is an incredibly reliable document that tells a literally unbelievable story. It is more trustworthy than any other ancient document, but it also requires more of us than any other document. Today, I want to ask a different question. I want to ask, what is in the New Testament? I want to give us a basic overview of the types of literature in the New Testament and what to expect when we read it in a general sense. And so, 
At the most basic level, there are 27 books within the New Testament. On this point, all Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox Christians, everyone agrees. Among those 27 books, there are basically four main genres, and those would be Gospels, historical narrative, for example, what you would find in the Acts of the Apostles, letters, sometimes called epistles, and apocalypse, like the book of Revelation. These are all sorts of different types of literature that we find, and I've provided a list in the PDF workbook to kind of parse this out a bit more for you. If I started to tell you the story of Goldilocks and the Three Bears, and you proceeded to ask questions like, where was the Bears family cabin located? And can we be sure of its location today? Uh, or Or you might ask something like, why were these bears living in a house like humans, eating porridge and stuff? Why aren't these bears living in a proper cave? Or at least in a refashioned eco-friendly tree like Winnie the Pooh. The problem would be obvious if you came to the story of Goldilocks and the three bears and asked those sort of weird questions. The obvious problem would be these are the wrong kind of questions to ask of a story because they totally misread the genre of a fairy tale or a story. In the same way, if your boss sent you an email asking you to arrive, you know, at a meeting five minutes early, dressed in a business suit, ready to deliver a detailed budget report to the partners of a large business, and then you turn up 27 minutes late in your pajamas, wearing a large bucket cowboy hat, proudly carrying a watercolor painting of a magical unicorn, because that is how you interpreted the poetic metaphor of your boss's email, you'd be laughed out of the room. Come on, everyone knows that you never use watercolors when you paint a unicorn. The washed color of watercolor could never do justice to the magical beauty of a unicorn. It's the same kind of thing with the Bible. So let's jump in and look at some examples so that by knowing what kind of literature is in the New Testament, you'll be able to read it rightly. Now, the easiest place to start is with the letters, or as some people call them, the epistles. The Apostle Paul wrote most of these, and the earliest ones are 1 Thessalonians and Galatians. And these were written really early, around the year 50 CE. Paul wrote other major letters that you might have heard of, like Romans, uh, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Philippians, just to name a few. And other New Testament letters were written by other apostles, like Peter, James, Jude, and John. I've provided a list of all 27 of the New Testament books, their genres, and rough dates for their composition, and all sorts of information about authorship and stuff like that in the PDF workbook. So have a look if you're interested in that sort of thing. For now, I just want to emphasize that when you read a letter, the goal for the reader is not to imaginatively create random meanings, but to try to understand what the author was trying to communicate. A letter is not a poem. It's not a metaphor. It's a letter. And these letters are where the apostles are teaching about all sorts of things. Things like core doctrines of the faith, Christian ethics, and much, much more. 
So for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 13 through 14, the Apostle Paul says this, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. Now, Paul here is not writing a choose-your-own-adventure book with an assortment of possible outcomes. Rather, he's writing an authoritative letter teaching about a key article of the apostolic faith, the bodily resurrection. There's no way to come away from 1 Corinthians 15, as some have, and say, well, maybe there's not a resurrection. Paul literally says that if you say such a thing, your faith is useless. So too, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee from sexual immorality. And when Peter tells the new Christians in 1 Peter 4, verse 3, that they have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry, these are not unclear, foggy texts that defy our understanding. You know what I mean? We are meant to hear Paul and Peter giving an authoritative ethical teaching on the virtuous nature of Christian living. If we come away thinking, right, I better get started on that watercolor unicorn painting, we've misread the text. I mean, go ahead. By all means, paint a unicorn if that's your thing. It's kind of weird, especially if you're a grown man, but whatever, dude. We're all God's children. Paint a whole pantheon of those mythical airborne pseudo-ponies for all Paul cares. But when Paul says, flee from sexual immorality, he means something very clear. That the way we use our bodies matters. And when Peter says to flee from drunkenness, that pretty much rules out getting wasted and hooking up with random people at a keg party. And we'll see in future episodes, the apostles offer this kind of wisdom not as a means of stealing our joy, but as a means of exponentially increasing it. Fleeing from these behaviors, that rescues us from practices that cause harm to our bodies and harm to our souls. Of course, not everything in the New Testament is so matter-of-fact. That's why we have to interpret the Bible. I would argue, though, that on matters of primary significance to the faith or to Christian living, Christian practice, the Bible is clear. The Protestant reformers, like Luther and John Calvin, they refer to this as perspicuity or the clarity of Scripture. That clarity has some limits, though. Paul tells us in his first letter to the Corinthians, for example, that women should wear head coverings. Now, in most of our churches today, women and men are free to wear their hair however they want. In Paul's time, a head covering for a woman was a style that represented an appropriate way to wear hair if you were a woman. But this style no longer applies today because we no longer live in the first century. 
Most people don't walk around in togas either. Though I, for one, am keen definitely for a toga comeback. Stuff like this happens all the time when reading scripture. This is why it's really, really important to not only read the Bible, but to read what others have said about the Bible and to read broadly. As you do so, you'll notice that a consensus will emerge and you'll keep yourself from making the same interpretive errors that people have already made in the past. You know, in the workbook, you'll find loads of resources, mostly available for free online, and those will help you learn how to read within the breadth of the communion of interpreters throughout the ages. And that's really what you want to aim to do. When you read scripture, it's less about being unique and breaking new ground, and it's more about being faithful and standing on the solid ground of the faithful followers of Jesus from past ages. Now, moving on to another genre in the New Testament, the Gospels and the Book of Acts, let's have a brief look at how those differ from letters and from Apocalypse. What we have in the Gospels are the eyewitness testimony, ancient biography about the life and teachings of Jesus. And stories and true historical accounts of the earliest beginnings of the church. Now, many have attempted throughout history to cancel the supernatural elements of the Bible, thinking that contemporary people can no longer believe in miracles. They want to get underneath and behind the so-called myths of the Bible. Things like the virgin birth and the resurrection and the healings and miracles of Jesus, they want to get underneath those to find in that kernel some timeless, philosophical, generic truth. However, when we lose the cross, when we lose the resurrection, when we lose the virgin birth, stuff like that, what we end up actually worshiping is a God that is custom-made, a custom-made Jesus that looks more like ourselves than the biblical Christ. We end up with a Christianity so small and so generic that we could probably find its equivalent in a couple of proverbs inside of a takeaway fortune cookie. What we need, though, is not the fortune cookie Christ spouting off generic, pithy Zen statements. What we need is the biblical Christ, the one who meets us in the pages of the Spirit-inspired scriptures. Otherwise, we shouldn't bother coming to church on Sundays. It's a waste of time. Seriously, just go out for Chinese at lunch, grab a couple of those cookies, the meal will be much more delicious than Holy Communion and more filling, and the content of the cookie might even be more inspiring than a Christ who has been stripped of all his power and his might, and majesty, and his divinity. If we believe in a supernatural entity that we call God, is it really that hard to believe that this almighty, eternal, perfect deity could multiply loaves, heal diseases, rise from the dead? So when we read the Gospels, again, 
we are reading an incredibly reliable record of a literally unbelievable story. But it is not a fictional story. It is a true story, corresponding to actual events, teachings, sayings, and miracles. Even the fictional stories that Jesus tells, which are called parables, point to abiding theological truths. The gospel is the unbelievable but true story of how God saved the world through a baby in a manger and a carpenter on a cross who died for the sins of the world and was risen for the life of the world. There's actually one more genre called apocalypse. This is the one that gets the most strange and funky. It occurs in some of the Gospels, but we mainly see it in the book of Revelation. We're going to dive into that in full in another episode when we talk about the New Testament's view on the end times. But as we wrap up here in this lecture, I want to ask, where might you be tempted to insert your own structure and beliefs into the New Testament, rather than to let the New Testament reveal a new way of thinking to you? After you finish coloring your interpretive New Testament unicorn in the workbook, nah, sorry, that's not in there, but you can color a unicorn and send it into the college if you want. I want to invite you to read through 1 Thessalonians and Galatians. These are two of the earliest texts in the New Testament. And as you read them, I want you to periodically stop and pray the text. Watch. Watch how the God who inspired that text meets you again and again through the text as you read it by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'll see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland. Honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.